about him. Amen. This morning we're in the book of Colossians, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Be in chapter 2, starting in verse 8 through verse 10. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, just now help us to understand the preeminent Christ. Help our hearts to be impacted by your love, by your grace, by your mercy, by your faithfulness, by your holiness. And may we see your holiness most clearly in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, nothing could be more practical for the Christian life than what we deal with today. Because, uh, frankly, it's fundamental to who we are. Did you realize that ideas of religious mysticism and socialism and liberalism, none of that comes from Scripture? And yet, too often, that's what defines Christianity today. And the reason for that is because there was this unhealthy, unholy union between biblical teaching and human philosophy that occurred many years ago. And it unequally yoked together scripture with the philosophy of the day. And the way they did that is they put the Bible on a Procrustean bed. And whatever didn't fit with their philosophy, they lopped off. And you know what I mean by Procrustean bed? You'll remember in Greek mythology, Procrustus was the son of Poseidon. Poseidon, the god of the sea, right? And Procrustus, this, this rogue bandit, would uh, invite unsuspecting guests to come and spend the night as they came in off of the sea, so mythology says. And he'd lay his unsuspecting guest on an iron bed. And many times they were too long to fit on the bed that he had. And so he lopped off whatever limbs or body parts didn't fit. And so that term procrustean bed, as applied by Edgar Allan Poe, became a term for the practice of tailor-fitting data to its container. That's, the, that's what was done with the Bible in past centuries, they took the Bible and they laid it upon a bed of philosophical ideas and what didn't fit what they thought within their finite understanding, they simply lopped it off. They denied that it was true. And as a result, this is why back in the early days of our country, you see deism emerging. It's because of the Procrustean bed. And that is followed in the 1800s by what? The emergence of cults. And that is followed by what? 
the preaching of a social gospel. And that is followed by liberalism. All of that was born out of adapting scripture to fit the philosophical ideas of men. And you know what? What they came up with sounded really good. It sounded good. It sounded religious. It sounded as if it was Christian. But basic truths were cut off by seminary professors who amended scripture to accommodate their philosophy. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit warns the church about in Paul's day. Because in his day, there were Gnostics and Jewish legalists who were infiltrating the church there at Colossae. And Paul knows you can't effectively worship a holy God by mingling truth with error. That violates the first commandment. And so that's why he begins with see to it, blepo. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You know, I found it interesting that Paul uses the same word twice. I put it up here, even, even if you don't know Greek, you'll notice you can see, right, that the word after takes and the word after captive are the same word. Selagageon. 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 Rarely used in Scripture. So why does Paul choose that word here? Because it had to do with plundering. Salah had to do with bounty or treasure. Ago, carry away. Let no one carry away you as treasure. This word was used in Greek writings for kidnapping. This is the word used whenever somebody was being taken captive during a time of war. And Paul uses it here very strategically when talking about the mind. Because as a man thinketh, so is he. In other words, what you think not only impacts what you do, it impacts who you are. So how does this captivity take place? He says, by philosophy. And it's interesting, to my knowledge, and, and I, I didn't have time to do as much research as I would have liked, but to my knowledge, this is the only place in the Bible where this word is used. Phila, from the Greek word phileo, where you get Philadelphia, it means a, a brotherly type of love. Phila, Sophia, wisdom. Phila, philosophia, wisdom, love of wisdom, philosophy. It's the only place I know of that it appears. Now, Paul is not warning about those who love wisdom. He's warning about those who use their love of wisdom to capture the mind and rob the soul. Well, how do they do that? He says, through philosophies and empty deceit. In other words, every man who stands before a campfire and gazes into the sky and wonders, where did this all come from? How did this all come about? Why am I here? What is this about? What is my purpose? What is evil? How's it going to be dealt with? Where's history going? Everyone who does that is a philosopher. And man will, through his philosophy, come to conclusions based on his finite perspective. And so Paul addresses this. 
He says, man working within himself by means of his own ability to reason, he's going to arrive at conclusions about his origin, about his nature, about the existence of evil, about his purpose in history. All the issues of ontology that has to do with being, his morals, his ethics, ideas of epistemology. How can we know something is true? And his own conclusions are limited at best. So when he teaches others about his speculations, he takes their mind captive by means of those philosophical musings. And when we see that happening, whether it's in a classroom, in a church service, in conversation with coworkers, what are we to do? What do, we, do, do we yield? Do we yield to what they say because we don't want to appear uneducated? You see the word blepo here? See to it? In other places, that word is used. It's translated in the English, beware. You better beware. Nobody takes you captive and makes you a spiritual POW. Those coming to the church at Colossae, claimed to receive messages from angels. And they would mix those messages in with ceremonial observances from the Old Testament. Why? Why would they do that? It added credibility to their teaching. See, it says so right here in the Bible, does it? And Paul says you better be careful because they will draw you away from Christ into a religious realm that will hold you captive. If you look back in your Bibles, verse 6, when he's talked about having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son, he says, therefore what? In verse 6, walk in him. Don't be taken captive by the philosophy and empty deceit of men. Joe DiMaggio, one of the greatest baseball players ever, never wrote an autobiography because he valued his privacy. Now, other people wrote about him. And it was always said that if DiMaggio ever wrote his own biography, all those other books about him would have been unnecessary, would be obsolete. Why? Because men are writing about what they think DiMaggio was thinking and doing. And if DiMaggio ever spoke and said, no, here's what I was thinking, here's what I was doing, then all of their speculations are meaningless. Same is true with the Lord. Man can think whatever he likes. Man can speculate about, about his origins and about his purpose for being here. But if the one who created him ever speaks, and if it starts with in the beginning, and it ends with we shall reign forever and forever, Revelation 22, 6, then all the speculations of men are obsolete at that point. They're shifting sands. They're pointless. You know, in the 70s, someone spray-painted graffiti on a building at Harvard. It was a quote from a guy named Nietzsche, an existentialist. They spray-painted on the side of the building, God is dead, and underneath of it, they signed it Nietzsche. And then someone else came along and spray-painted underneath of it, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. The wages of sin is death. 
No mortal escapes it. Nietzsche created his own Procrustean bed, and he died upon it. Paul says, you beware that no such thing happens to you. Don't let men take you captive to their philosophy, through psychology or sociology or science or any other subject. Don't lop off everything in your Bible that doesn't fit within their speculation. Now notice the word that he uses here for deceit, apotes. Why does he use that word? Because men's theories sound appealing. But they can't provide a foundation for life. They can't give us a foundation for our purpose in life. They can't give us even the, the a foundation for our morality or anything else for that matter. Why? Why can man not do that? I don't care if you're Hitler. You can't do that. Because your philosophies are at best conjecture. Let me give you an example, a modern day example. Take the social gospel, which is very, very prevalent today. Some within the theological realm of academia claim that biblical principles are meant to address issues of poverty. They're meant to address education. They're meant to address crime. They're meant to address welfare, all the ills of society. And they claim that Christ is not going to return until we rid ourselves of such social evil. And to a lot of people, that sounds really good. What is the problem with it? Do you see the problem? Surely you do. Those promoting the social gospel, which is, is causing problems within several denominations, this is what they are debating about within the Southern Baptist denomination, right? It's becoming a major conflict. Why? Because those pushing that agenda relegate the redemption of man and the atoning death of Christ to the glory of God to the back seat. Why? Because messages that address racism, that address crime, that address poverty, that address social injustice, must be brought to the forefront if man's life on earth is going to get better. We must address man's economic well-being in society. And as a result, society benefits as a whole. And so now, within those circles, the gospel has to do more with how many wells we dig and how much wealth we redistribute. It becomes more about politics as being the answer to man's problems rather than the redemption of his soul. The gospel isn't so much about Christ's atoning death and the new birth that results in transformed lives for God's glory. It's all about how man can live his best life now. Do you see the deception? Do you see how good it sounds? How reasonable it sounds? Why? Because as Christians, we are the ones who care for the poor. We are the ones who care for the afflicted. We are the ones who take in orphans. We are the ones who care for widows. But the most basic need of man is not physical. It is spiritual. And it's because we have been transformed spiritually that we do what we do physically. We 
We do it for God's glory, not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. You know, if we buy into this social gospel message, you know what we're doing? We're no longer putting our trust in Christ, who, by the way, never encouraged accommodating immorality within the Roman culture or the Greek philosophies of the day. Never. He never redefined marriage through the acceptance of relationships involving perversion. So when any church replaces the preaching of God's word that brings about the true change with a focus on the social ills of the day, they are leading you away from Christ and causing you to follow a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch. I don't follow him. I don't even know who he is. He's the guy who lopped off scripture to accommodate his understanding of the gospel so that he could focus on the economic and social injustices of his day. Rather than address the spiritual needs that are at the heart of all that is evil, including racism and social injustice. You know, when someone says, you need to be more accommodating to the cultures, to the culture's changing winds of morality. Why are you all not more accepting? Who are they asking you to trust? They're not asking you to trust Christ. They're leading you away from Christ, and they're asking you to trust a guy named Frederick Schallmacher. He's the one who introduced that. He's the 18th century student of Immanuel Kant, flawed men who would speculate about God while they ignored the truth the Lord revealed about himself. They are the ones who planted the seeds of liberalism in our seminaries that are turning out pastors who accommodate the shifting winds of our culture. Paul says you've got to beware when this is happening around you. That you don't let it happen to you. That you don't be taken in by that. It leads to disaster. Bertrand Russell, a well-known British philosopher who throughout the immorality of his life philosophically explained away the existence of God. And then in his 90s, just before he dies, you know what he said? Philosophy. Philosophia, that which he loved. Philosophy has proven to be a washout to me. You embraced that for 70-some years of your life and it led you to meaninglessness? That's what Russell said. David Hume, the deistic Scottish philosopher who was immoral in every sense of the word, was so frightened by death that they said that his bed literally shook. And he demanded, he demanded the candles be lit all night and that somebody stay with him. Because he was so Afraid of dying. He died with remorse. You know why? Because he spent his entire life based on the lies of his own philosophical wisdom. And it's not just atheistic philosophers. Let me give you a religious example. We've talked about the social gospel. Let's talk about one of the largest religions in America. They took elements of Christianity and they mixed it in pagan ideas. They, they lopped off 
the Bible where it, it didn't fit within their, their philosophy. And one of their early presidents, Lorenzo Snow, coined this creed for their religion. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Oh, that's catchy. That's catchy. In other words, what he's saying is God was once like man. Did you realize that through multiple marriages, he reincarnated higher and higher and higher till finally Christ became the God over this earth? And as he is, you may become too. And so today, they've got thousands, tens of thousands. They've got millions believing the same nonsense that was being peddled in the first century by Gnostics. There are people who believe that they are embryo gods. You say, well, that's bizarre. I would never buy into something like that. Who would believe such nonsense? Well, the latest numbers say around 15 million here in this country. 15 million? Yeah. And your kids are being influenced by that. It's throughout Hollywood. You got all kinds of celebrities. I don't even know who Catherine Hagel is, but she's one of the leading proponents of it. Juliana Huff, I think she dances or something. I don't know who she is. So I don't let my kids watch that kind of television. Do you listen to the radio? You got radio personalities that believe that. Glenn Beck does. Glenn Beck believes that. We got people in Washington who believe that. Senators. Mitt Romney believes that. Warren Hatch believes. It's throughout the athletes, whether it's basketball, football, baseball. You got Bryce Harper, all-star baseball player. He, he buys into it. It's in the entertainment industry. Um, singers, not just the Osmonds, but I mean, you got Gladys Knight. I don't know that her pips necessarily believe it, but she does. Gordon Hall, a multimillionaire, once owned the MGM, he claimed that the reason that he was worth $100 million by the time that he was 32 years old was because his goal in life was to become the god of his own planet. Paul said that's the reason that he's a Mormon. The philosophy appeals to him. Now, in his case, it didn't work out too well. He ended up being charged for racketeering, fraud, involvement in organized crime, and by manipulating the stock of his fitness clubs, he duped investors in seven states. And so instead of being the god of his own planet, he is the god of his own private cell in prison. But he gives us a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit through Paul is warning us about. He's saying it doesn't matter how appealing the message might sound. It doesn't matter how much you might want to believe it. Doesn't matter how credible the message might sound to you, there is a giant Venus flytrap awaiting you at the end. When you are taken captive by the philosophy of men, empty deceit, where there's no truth to it, that's why it's empty. And it doesn't matter whether it's atheistic or theistic, it is destructive. Blepo, beware. And you see this phrase, elemental spirits? That was often a term referring to the gods. Because another tradition of that day believed the elemental spirits behind earth, wind, fire, that, that nature controls the planets, the stars determine the course of your life. Julius Caesar believed that. And even before him, even before the Romans bought into that, 
The Greeks believed that. Alexander the Great believed that. They believed in their horoscope. You don't if you're in Christ. Why? Because the stars and constellations are given as signs and seasons, not for divination. That's why when Israel gave in to worshiping the stars, they always came under judgment. There were those who are superstitious in the first century. And they believe that the course of life is determined by the elemental spirits that govern the heavenly bodies. And unless you receive a message from the angels as to how you can avoid fatalistic determinism within your life, which, by the way, the Gnostics could provide for you through the secret knowledge that they had received, you were doomed. You were doomed. That's what they were telling the people there in the church. And none of that nonsense. Do you see the word kata? None of the nonsense was according, uh, that was according to human tradition. None of the nonsense that was according to superstition was according to Christ who is the truth. Who sent the spirit of truth to you. That's why verse 9, for in him the whole fullness. That's a Gnostic term. The Gnostics believed that God could not create a world that would then turn evil. And so he created another God and another God and another God and another God. And you had all these emanations. When you put all of them together, you have the fullness of God. That was their word, pleroma. And he says the pleroma of God. The fullness of his nature, the essence of his being, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Christ. Now notice he says deity dwells is in the present tense. You know, this word dwells alludes to the Lord making himself known in the Old Testament. How? How did the Lord make himself known in the Old Testament? He would dwell in the holy of holies where the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur was made. And the whole fullness of the Lord is not composed of all these emanations that you claim make up God. No, the whole fullness, the pleroma of deity dwells bodily in Christ. In other words, the divine nature of the Lord can be seen in what he's created, but he can't be known. He can't be known through the things he's created. I mean, you can see that he's intelligent. You can see he's powerful. You can see that he's orderly. But you can't personally know him unless he reveals himself. And Paul says that's what he did through the incarnation of Christ. That's why Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ is not some emanation of God, as Gnostics would contend. The whole fullness of deity of the God of the universe dwells bodily in Christ meaning he sacrificed none of his divinity when he entered humanity and you know what he sacrificed none of his humanity when he returned to the deity of the father he's both God and man for eternity and that's how our atonement is secured forever so what's his point? Verse 10, and you, you, you have been filled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. This word filled is from the word plerao, uh, means complete, plerao. I've been completely enlightened to the Lord by Christ. He's the final word. He's the one the Old Testament prophecies proclaim. He's the one the New Testament scriptures explain. To know him is to know who I am, why I'm here, where I'm going. He's revealed what evil is. You realize you can't have evil unless a holy God exists. Because all evil is, I mean, who's determined what's right and wrong? Hitler says, well, listen, I know right from wrong. And I say that it's right to kill those people in order to create this race. That's your perspective. That's your philosophy. But is that the truth? No. You can't have evil unless there is a holy God. Because evil is an ontological parasite of the holiness of God. Why is it wrong to eat from that tree? He said, don't eat from it. And he is holy, eternally holy. How's evil going to be dealt with? When's it going to be removed? How, how's all this going to end? Christ tells us. So intellectually, I don't need any man to speculate through his philosophical musings as to who the Lord is. Everything the Lord wants me to know about him, he has revealed in his word made flesh. Through his word recorded Theonoustos. Judicially, I don't need any help. I mean, being fully God, Christ satisfied the just wrath God's holy character demands for my sin. Being in him means I can stand in the presence of a holy God and be completely justified. Why? Because I'm in Christ. He satisfied the wrath that my sin deserves. And he is without sin and he is fully divine. So what more do I need judicially? I don't. Morally, I don't need any help. His word is complete in every area of my life. He tells me what kind of husband I ought to be. He tells me what kind of father I should be. What kind of grandfather I should be. What kind of citizen I should be. What kind of employee I ought to be. He has told me everything I need to know about matters of sexuality. About purity, about honesty, about morality, about marriage. He's told us why he created man, both male and female. He's told us why a man and a woman comes together and becomes one in marriage and procreates. And man can't change that. They, can't, they can redefine marriage according to their philosophy, but they can't change the essence of marriage. They can't do it. He's addressed everything pertaining to life and godliness. All my questions, intellectually, judicially, morally, have been answered in Christ. As for creation, physically and metaphysically, he is the head. I don't need second opinions. Now, most all of us will never become victim to Gnosticism. We're not likely to be vulnerable. If you've been coming here for any length of time, you're not necessarily vulnerable to the New Age movement. And you're probably not going to be taken in by some religious cult. I would not expect any of you to go to palm readers or to check your horoscope every day to, to set the course of your life. 
But you know one area where many who come to church every Sunday who claim to be Christian, you know where they're vulnerable? In the world of academia, they have indoctrinated us to a Freudian view of life. And in the realm of psychology, you have man's speculation about his very nature. The nature of man, the nature of evil, the remedy for evil. And you know what? In the Freudian view, it's not based on biblical truth. The philosophies of men today often usher us through modern psychology into the realm of theology without us even knowing that it's happening. And I'm just amazed. I'm amazed at the number of people who will profess Christ as Savior, and yet as if he is inadequate to address our needs, they will seek out psychologists for instructions about how to navigate the issues of their life. Freud was an Austrian neurologist who put forth his psychoanalytical theory that says that freedom from past issues comes through your self-awareness. He says it has to do with your egocentric love of self. And you know, a lot of folks who call themselves Christian counselors will use the Freudian approach to counseling. And they dress it up with scripture and call it Christian. Now, are they purposely being deceptive? Probably not. I believe a good many of them are not doing that on purpose. I believe they truly, they truly believe that they're taking the right approach. Why? Because they themselves have been deceived by their education. That's why Paul says, see to it, blepo, beware. How are we to see to it? How are we to know if we're being taken captive by empty deceit? How can we know this? Don't look for answers to life according to human speculation, whether it's secular, religious, or superstitious. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ and you've been filled in him. That's the word for complete. You know what that means? It means he directs every area of your life. How? Through the indwelling presence of his spirit according to his word that he has given you, Theonustos. Peter said his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, the Bible really is sufficient to address every area of our life. All things pertaining to life and godliness according to him who has called us. So let me ask you this. Do you have a Bible? Yes. Do you read it? Do you memorize it? Do you know it? Do you allow it to address every area of your life? Do you live it? Do you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. Does that mean you now have a right relationship with the Lord through Christ's atoning work? The answer is yes. So do you trust him? Not the philosophy of men. 
Do you trust him? And number four, you have the support of those within this body, his body. That's why you don't need men speculating about how to live your life in a meaningful way. David said, your word is my counselor. You have the Lord speaking to you in his word made flesh. Who satisfied the just wrath your sin deserved. Why? Why would you trade that? Why would you trade that? For the speculations of some German. Some Englishman. Some Frenchman. Some Austrian. Where in your life are you ignoring God's word? One moment to think about it. You're ignoring him because you think your approach to marriage is fine. You think the way you do your job is fine. You think the way you're raising your children is fine. It's sufficient. Certainly better than most according to the philosophical wisdom of this age. Have you ever stopped to think that, that, that if you are a slave to your way of life, And you've gotten so comfortable with that. That you are being deceived. Within your rebellion. To God's word. You're able to. Justify. What you believe. You're able to justify how you live. It no longer even violates your conscience. Because in your rebellion, your conscience has been seared. That can happen by going to church week after week after week after week after week without repenting. And though you are being held captive, you don't even know it. I mean, this has been your way of life for so long, you think that it is normal. If that is the case, what hope do you have? You have no hope. As long as you are captive to a system that by nature is rebellious. Do you see why Paul says, Blepo, beware, see to it. This doesn't happen to you, please. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwells, he's fully divine. Fully divine. And you, you have been filled, made complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority over every aspect of your life. So beware who you trust. When you enter the classroom this fall, in just a week or two, you be careful you don't trust everything that teacher says. In the next month, you be careful you don't trust everything that professor says. They may not even realize that they are dwelling in spiritual darkness, but you know, you know, because you have God's word and you're complete in Christ. So don't trust everything your well-meaning religious friends tell you. Your well-meaning aunt or uncle or family member 
they may not even realize that they are trusting Walter Russianbush. They may not even know they are victims of Frederick Schellemacher. Never heard of him. And yet they are captive to his philosophy. You be careful that doesn't happen to you. Because you're filled in Christ. You're trusting him who rules over every aspect of your life. What you believe, who you are, what you do. All of that is being brought in line with his will by his word. That's why you, you who are in Christ, are not taken captive by the philosophy of human traditions or superstition. See, this is one of the most practical texts in all your Bible. And incredibly important that we continue to beware who we trust. Got questions? You can go to the connect table. There should be somebody back there that will be able to help you, or you're welcome to come and meet with me in my study this week, as, uh, as Spurgeon often did, or any of our elders or staff members for that matter. They're, they're glad to help any and everyone. So if there's somebody you know within this church that, that you can trust that will lead you in God's word, go to them. Go to them. Ask them for accountability. Ask them, do you see me living my life according to his word? And if not, out of love, tell me, tell me what I need to do to bring my life in line with who he is, because I am complete in him. Stand with me. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace that rescues us from spiritual darkness and opens our eyes and our minds to the truth of Christ, our Savior, in whom we have been filled, in whom we are made complete. Lord, we trust that by your word, by your spirit, that you will enable us to beware. We will beware, lest we be taken captive to the foolish philosophies of men, as we desire to remain faithful Christ to the end. For it's in his name we pray.